0: I I do hail from Ankeny, Iowa. Uh, My wife and I live just south of Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary. I do teach in the seminary. I have like one class in the college, but pretty much everything is in the seminary. I do manage the campus bookstore as well, Faith Bookstore. So you might see me there, but most of my time these days is actually spent over in the seminary. Uh, So I do a lot of teaching and then discipleship over there. We actually uh, got to know uh, Lucas and Carson Brace uh, there, and uh, that was kind of fun to be able to, to uh, uh, meet with them. Lucas and I got to get together a couple of times, and Ange went through a Bible study with Carson. So uh, we do know several of you, and it's nice to be able to open God's Word with you today. If you could go ahead and open in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to uh, look at Isaiah 1, 1 through 20 uh, this morning. I know your pastor is also from camp. Uh, we're grateful for the Iowa regular Baptist camp. I've been able to minister alongside of them a little bit there. Uh, I was kind of, you know, back at junior boys camp even this year. You guys had a pretty strong presence there. <laughs> so that was a lot of fun to uh, work with Paul and then Dan. And uh, then even to see, uh, you know, they need to put on, like, anybody can counsel. You sent your uh, 86-year-old grandpa Christensen out there, and he was even a junior boy's counselor with Lucas. And and that was a a great example even to some of the younger guys and the older guys uh, to just minister with junior boy kids. Children are very formative at that age. And uh, so a lot of times people underestimate the habits that are developed in a third through sixth grader. And uh, grateful to see your guys' investment in that next generation, even through the camp ministry, and even through both of your pastors and them being gone this week in uh, various camp ministries. So Isaiah chapter 1, I trust you found your way there. I'm just going to read through uh, Isaiah 1, 1 through 20. If you could follow along in your copy of God's word as I read. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evil doers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire in your very presence. Foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? "'Bring no more vain offerings. "'Incense is an abomination to me. "'New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. "'I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. "'Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. "'They have become a burden to me. "'I am weary of bearing them. "'When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. "'Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen.' Your hands are full of blood. Verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, They shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and the truth that it teaches. I thank you that we can be reconciled to you. You are a holy God, and we cannot come to you at all. We are guilty before you. But Lord, you have come to us, and you have provided a way that we can be reconciled to you. As we look at this text and as we contemplate this great truth, I pray that we would be reconciled to you and have peace. In Jesus' name, amen. In this text, God reaches down to Israel and he says, I want to be reconciled to you. I want peace with you. There is something, though, that stands in the way between God and Israel. It is their sin. And that is what this text talks about. It talks about their sin and how that separates them from God. It then provides a solution, one solution that doesn't really work so well. We're going to talk about that. But then we do see God's solution in the end. This text teaches us how we can also be reconciled to God. We can have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Messiah. He has provided the the substitutionary atonement so that we can be forgiven. And similarly, he provides a pattern for how we can be reconciled to each other. How we can have peace, husband and wife, parents and children brother and brother in the church. And this text, it teaches us the true path of reconciliation. And I pray as we work through this passage that we might even just contemplate. First and foremost, are you reconciled to God? Have you said, you know what? I cannot be reconciled to God in any effort of my own. I must submit to God's plan of reconciliation. I must trust in his plan of of reconciliation. And God, here I am. I trust in you. And if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I pray that you would do so. Talk to one of your pastors or a deacon. We'd be happy to show you how you can be reconciled to God. And similarly, as we go through the Christian life, we (laughs) sin. And we're really good at hiding that sin. And as we look at this text, I pray that we might examine our hearts, that God would reveal sin in our hearts, and that we would live in reconciliation to God. And, and ask for that forgiveness from our Lord and Savior. Just as 1 John 1, 9 states, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. And likewise, as you examine your life with your brother or sister in the Lord, whether it's in the family or in the church family, that you might be reconciled the way that God says that you can be reconciled. Let's go ahead and get into this text. God seeks reconciliation with us in the same way that he seeks reconciliation with with israel but there's a problem and that's the first point of the sermon there's a problem the problem is sin so here in verse one we have the setting the introduction to the book of isaiah the vision of isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning the J- judah and jerusalem in the days of these four kings isaiah lived a long life through the reigns of uzziah jotham ahaz and hezekiah According to historic tradition, it was Hezekiah's wicked son, Manasseh, who killed Isaiah by having him sawn in two. Isaiah is a very elderly man. He served the Lord his entire life. Our focus of this text, however, is on this first oracle, this first judgment, which Isaiah delivers to Israel. Here in verses 2 and 3, we have the problem clearly delineated. And Israel, however, is completely ignorant of the problem. Look at what it states here in verses 2 and 3. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Israel, when they came up out of Egypt, God made a covenant with Israel. And he said, if you will obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will get judged. (laughs) And what has Israel done? They have rebelled. And so what are they getting? Well, they're getting whacked. That's what's going on here. In this text, it talks about them sinning and getting whacked. And as he presents this, though, he takes this this original creation, or not creation, this original time when God set up this covenant with Israel, and he says, I have taken care of you. I have brought you up like a father. Do you see this here in verse 2? Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Israel is this rebellious child whom the Lord delivered out of Egypt. He walked them through the, the, uh, the wilderness wanderings. He took care of them by bringing food down from heaven. He brought them into the promised land with great wonders and power and authority. He did all of this stuff for them. And how do they repay him? Yeah, We don't want anything to do with you. They rebel. They rebel against him. And now, look at this illustration that Isaiah creates in verse 3. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Who has provided for Israel year after year after year through those wilderness wanderings, through those conquests? The Lord. He was the provider. Hmm. The Lord. He is the one that provides. He is the one that takes care of us. Hmm. You know, does an ox or a donkey know who its provider is? It's like, man, this dumb donkey doesn't do anything I'd say. But you know, if I stick food in the trough, guess what it does? It comes to eat. (laughs) You see the illustration here in verse three? The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. This stubborn mule... This stubborn donkey knows to go back to its owner to get food. But guess what Israel is? They're dumber than the donkey. They're stupider than a cow. Because they don't even go back to the one that provides for them. They're ignorant. They've completely lost their minds. This is what sin does, by the way. Sin makes you stupid. It alliterates I know stupid's kind of a harsh word, but it alliterates really nicely and it's true Sin it makes you foolish if you don't want to use that word use the word foolish Okay, it's not as catchy but sin makes you foolish and people just do really dumb things when they start living in sin I've seen it You've seen it As you get older you see people they they walk in faith and obedience to the word of god In their life, it seems to go pretty well And then they start to go off the path. And a lot of times it's just a little bit. But as they continue to live off the path, what happens? At the beginning, it just looks like a little bit off. But as they keep going, it just gets farther and farther and farther away from the truth. And before you know it, their path is way off the path. It's a completely different lifestyle. They've abandoned the faith. And now, guess what? They don't even think anymore. They're not even processing through because their sin has made them fools. We've seen this on several occasions, sometimes even with my family members. I have a sister who's gone off the path, and it's something that's recently developed, and it's something that my family is having to work through, and it seems like, whoa, all of a sudden, this is here. It's not. It's been a process it's been a journey. It's been the wrong journey. Sin is very deceptive. And when you want, when you see sin in your life, you need to say, hey, you know what? I mean, that other person, they may have messed up. I need to make sure I stay on the path. And if I'm starting to go off, I need to get corrected right away. Because if you keep going off that path, it's going to take you to really bad places. Here, Israel has become stupid. They've become fools. They're dumber than a donkey. They're ignorant because of their sin. In verse 4, we have a description of the extent of their sin. It's this corrupting sin. Look at this in verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. Each of these descriptions just kind of build on each other with that last one, children who deal corruptly. They're not just sinning. They are leading others into sin. This is the way it works. As you get off of the path a little bit and you keep going on that path and as little pieces of information from God's word might try to kick you back onto the path or somebody, you know, God brings somebody into your life and they're like, come back onto the path. But then you say, no, I'm, this is the right way. And you say, no, this is the right way. What are you doing? You're hardening your heart and you're saying, this is the right path. And as you become resolute in your belief that this is the right way to live life, what have you done? You've made yourself a fool. And as you continue to live on that path, that is truth to you. It's not truth according to God's word. It's truth to you. And then what do you do with that truth that you now believe for sure? You teach others. You say, this is the path. This is the path that you walk on. That's what Israel has done. Their sin has not only impacted themselves, it's impacting others. This is how sin corrupts. The problem is sin. It makes you a fool. And then you start corrupting others in verse four and you become uncorrectable. In verses five through eight, we see how Israel has become uncorruc- uncorrectable. They won't get back on the right path. Look at verse five. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? Okay. Do you see those questions and how Isaiah, he, he gets them thinking. Why will you be struck down? <laughs> It's like he creates this metaphor of a fight. And here's Israel as this person. And God, he brings trials into the person's life. And it's like God coming in and going, boom, you're on the wrong path. And then God comes in again, boom, you're on the wrong path. And he keeps bringing these problems and trials into somebody's life, trying to teach them and to guide them back onto the right path. But how does Israel respond to it? Like, no, they're not. I'm on the right path. (sighs) No, I'm on the right path. I'm on the right path. Look at the text. Look at what it says. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. Verse six, from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds that are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. You know, a little kid, they're playing gaga ball at camp and they scuff their knuckles up. I love it how the camp, they just are like, there's a Band-Aid, just go get a Band-Aid. You know, everybody needs to get a Band-Aid at camp because they bust up their knuckles. Well, they're taking care of their knuckles because the knuckles hurt. Well, imagine you're scuffing up your knuckles and you're just like, eh, whatever. And they just keep getting scuffed up and beat up. That's the picture here. God has literally brought trial after trial after trial after trial into their lives to guide them and direct them onto the right path. And what have they just done? And God's saying, why should I even correct you anymore? You're not going to listen. We get that way. I know somebody that's gotten that way. She's my sister. Sometimes it's somebody close to us. Somebody, it's, sometimes it's somebody that we've invested in for years. They've come to your church. You've poured your life into them when they were a child, when they were in youth group. And they won't be corrected anymore. That's Israel here. You don't want to get to this point. And so as you're here, I'm grateful that you're here. Usually the people in this situation that are way down here that are all beat up, okay, They don't usually come to church. They don't want to get beat up again. If you are living in rebellion against the Lord, I would encourage you, repent. There is forgiveness. And by the way, this text isn't about the beating. Did you see where the text goes? It goes to the healing. That's where it gets to. We're just not there yet. This is the bad news part. But the bad news is real. And the bad news is something that we need to examine our hearts about. Israel has been beat up by the Lord. And now, historically, in their situation, we have a description of it in verses 7 and 8. In verse 7, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Israel had been invaded by these foreign powers, and their land was destroyed. Continuing, in your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. Verse 8. And the daughter of Zion, that would be the city of Jerusalem, is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Imagine this cucumber field, okay? Imagine this vineyard, and they would have a little booth there for the person that would take care of it, make sure that animals stay out of it and whatever else, okay? Well, that's what Jerusalem is left like, because everything around is gone. And when when Sennacherib came to uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, that's what happened. We have historical records of it, and it's narrated for us in Isaiah in chapters 36 through 38. How every city of Judah fell. There was only one city that remained, Jerusalem. It was the only city that was left. That might be the historical setting that Isaiah is speaking about in this passage. I would encourage you, do not play around with sin. If there is some sin in your life, repent of it and be reconciled to God. Ask for His forgiveness. There's this very dangerous prayer that I encourage people to pray. It goes something like this Lord, I am a sinner that I don't see my sin because I've hardened my heart to it again and again and again. Reveal the sin in my life that I have hidden for years. May I be reconciled to you. It's a very dangerous prayer because it's essentially asking God to reveal the sins that we've been sweeping under the rug for a real long time. It's asking God once more to say, Lord, expose that sin so that I can have peace with you. I would encourage you to pray that prayer. I would encourage you to pray it on a regular basis that God would bring to to light sin that you are hiding. Sin that is unconfessed. We have a problem. Sin is our problem. The Lord is a holy God. We cannot be in communion with him because of our sin. We have to have something done with our sin. Often we want to reconcile our sin. We want to fix things. And I'm a guy. I like to fix things, right? And we tend to fix things the way guys fix things, you know, our own way. We figure it out. Well, that's what we have here in this text. They try to fix it. How do they try to fix it? Look at verses 10, 10 through 15. We have man's false solution. You see, God sees, seeks reconciliation with us, but we have this problem. We have sin in our life. It needs to be taken care of. How can we have that sin taken care of? I know. I'm going to do something. Great. Great do something, but does that take care of the sin? It's kind of like a husband and wife relationship, you know? It's one of the beauties of marriage. We mess up and sin against each other all the time, right? (laughs) And then when we mess up and we sin against our spouse, how do we fix it? Well, man, I really wasn't very nice to her. I know what I need to do. (laughs) I, I should just Maybe I can just do the dishes or something. And just kind of make it up to her. You know, I'll do something good uh, to tell her that I love her. You know, I mean, I'm saying go ahead, do the dishes, but guess what that's doing? What is that doing? It's like, oh, I made a mistake. I got to make it right, so I'll do something good. You know, oh, I made a mistake again. I'm going to do something good. And essentially, we're doing this little thing where we're like, Oh, you know what? I messed up a lot. Yeah, but I'm doing a lot of good things too. And let's focus on this, not this bad stuff. Right? What are we doing? We're weighing the scales. And we're hoping the good things outweigh the bad things with our relationship with our spouse. Is that how sin is forgiven? Is that how we get reconciliation with our spouse? Is that how we get reconciliation with God? How does Israel seek reconciliation with God? Look at verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Oh, that's not a compliment. Okay. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah. Those were the wicked cities. They were like really, really bad. And he's like really insulting them. You guys are really wicked. And then what does he state here in verse 10? I'm sorry, verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Do you see this rhetorical question in verse 11? What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? It's like, why are you guys sacrificing all the time? That's what God's saying. Can you imagine Israel just scratching their head and they're like, Uh, God, didn't you tell us to sacrifice? (laughs) It's in the Old Testament law. They're supposed to sacrifice. And God's saying, quit sacrificing. And they're like, huh? What does God really want? What does God truly desire? You see, this is what we do. We're like, oh, I messed up. Well, I got to go and sacrifice to God. Do the good thing. So then I'm good with God. That's what they're doing. That's not the solution. That's not it. I was talking to a missionary one time several years ago. And uh, they were having some building project. And he was explaining how God just graciously provided for the funds so that they could complete this project. And he got this random check from somebody he didn't even know. He knew nothing about the person. It was an anonymous donation for like $50,000. And we're talking about like 25 years ago. So it was a lot of money. And he tried to reach out to learn something about the guy, to thank him, and to just to see what his spiritual situation was. But he couldn't. There was no way for him to get in touch with the guy. And, you know, he hoped that the guy really, uh, you know, was a true believer and, and, and had a relationship with God. But so many people, you know what they do? They mess up and they sin. So then, you know what they do? Here's money. <laughs> and that fixes it. It doesn't fix it. And he's like, some guy probably just thought, I'm going to get good with God by giving all this money to atone for whatever sin that he had done. And he wanted to get a hold of him and tell him that's not the way it works. That's us doing what they're doing. do you understand that? That's what we do. when we just throw money at it, instead of actually seeking reconciliation with God, God's way. we're just sacrificing an animal, which, by the way, they're animals. That was really an expensive thing. okay? All the blood of bulls and goats. It was like their money, all right? That was their wealth. And they're sacrificing it to God. And what's God say? I don't want it. Isn't that crazy? I don't want it. Now look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Look at the rhetorical question again. Okay, and if you're familiar with Old Testament law, what did God require them to do? You know, three times a year, they had these pilgrimage festivals where they're supposed to come to Jerusalem and worship the Lord. So what was Israel doing? Exactly what God told them to do. So Israel to be scratching their heads and be like, Oh yeah, uh, God, you told us to come to your courts. You told us to come here and worship you. But what is God saying in this passage? Let's start again at verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure. What is the word? Iniquity. And solemn assembly. Because how are they coming to God? They're not coming to God in this humble, repentant heart. They're not coming to God in submission to his word, in submission to his authority. They're not coming to God with sinless, repentant, Hearts, they're coming to God in their wickedness. And they're checking off their Christian to-do list. That's what they're doing. God doesn't want that. You see, the Christian life is not something on Sunday or Wednesday or Christmas or Easter. The Christian life is a Christian life. It's a life. It's a life of humility. It's a life of, God, I've messed up again. I've sinned against you again. Please forgive me. It's a life that's coming before the Lord and lifting up your voice in praise to him how firm a foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Instead, what do we sing? How firm a foundation are my righteous deeds and good behavior. <clears throat> Wrong answer. This is man's false solution. Israel brought before the Lord's sacrifice. Israel came to God worshiping him the way they wanted to worship him false worship god says i don't want anything to do with it verse 14 it continues I, your noon moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates he doesn't want them there they have become a burden to me i'm weary of bearing them look at this he's building off of this beast terminology and it's like god's having to tolerate all of their wickedness and he's just like i'm sick of it Verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And this is how they would pray. They would lift up hands. Does this sound familiar? 2 Timothy 2, lift up holy hands before the Lord. What kind of hands does Timothy teach us to lift up before the Lord? Holy hands before the Lord hands that have repented and said, Lord, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I come before you as forgiven by the grace of God that has been accomplished through Jesus, the Messiah, and his death on the cross. Now, Lord, please help me. Save my friend. Deliver me. Strengthen me. Do whatever it is that you pray for. I should have picked some of the ones. You actually have some really good prayer requests in your bulletin for some of your missionaries. I was reading through those in your bulletin. So great prayer requests. Pray for the Newmans, that they would get their their support in. The Galbraiths says they need to get the visa, um, their daughter's visa, so then they can get over to Great Britain before Amelia's visa expires. Okay? And you come to God in this way in humility. This is what God desires. The children of Israel, they're praying to the Lord and their hands are full of blood. They're offering these bloody sacrifices earlier, but their hands are full of blood because of the injustice and the perversion of justice in their country. Verses 16 and 17, well, 16 through 20 then gives us the solution. So you have the problem in verses 2 through 9, Then you have man's false solution in verses 10 through 15. Now we see God's solution in verses 16 through 20. And this has to do with cleansing. Do you notice? It's not what you do. It's what you get rid of. You've got the sin. You have the dirt, the grime. You need to be cleansed. And who can do that? Not you. It's God. You need to confess your sins and be forgiven. Look at verse 16. Wash yourselves. There's nine imperatives here. Look at all of these. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. So cleanse yourself of the things that you're doing that you did wrong and then quit doing what's wrong. There's a progression through these things. Then continuing. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Have you ever thought about that, learning to do good? It's actually something that is learned. Some people have completely lost the idea of what is good and how to do good. And it has to be relearned. The scriptures are what teaches us what's good. Learn to do good. Seek justice. And then there are three illustrations of justice in verse 17. We have to remember that in the ancient world, with Israel as a country, Their justice was supposed to be an outflowing of God's justice. So their perversion of justice is a perversion of God's justice. And they were very, very unjust. The people that were most vulnerable were taken advantage of. And we see this in verse 17. And what does he say? Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. The fatherless... And the widow were the ones that were most at risk of being taken advantage of. And rich and powerful men could easily take advantage of these weak individuals. It took judges that feared God, not man, to stand up for justice and and support the fatherless, to support the widow, And so this is the specific historical sin that's addressed in this setting. I'm guessing I don't have any judges that are here. Maybe I do. (laughs) But if I do, you need to think through what God's word has to say as far as what justice is concerned. But applying these truths to our lives, understanding that God's justice is what's true justice, standing for God's justice, that's what's right. And how do you learn what God's justice is? God's justice is found in this book. and We pursue after God's justice. Furthermore, for us, it's some of those first steps. Wash yourselves and make yourself clean. Repent of your sin. Do what's good, not what's evil. That is the aspect, more of a relevant application for most of the people in the church. So God's solution here is to be cleansed. God's solution here is to change your behavior and to do what's right. This is dramatically brought forth in this courtroom-type scene in verse eighteen. Come now, let us reason together. This is like, hey, we're before the the the, the courtroom of God, and the heavens and the earth are are the witnesses. Okay, and, and now let's have this discussion. Let's have this debate. Let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And this is the beautiful thing about God's plan of justice. You sinned. So what do you deserve? Justice demands your penalty. That you deserve. But what is God willing to give you? Do you see that? Your sin is like scarlet, but God will make it white as snow. This is one of the amazing things about the, tr- the Christian faith, which creates true justice and it creates true peace. It creates peace between you and God. It creates peace between you and your brother in Christ. It creates peace between you and your spouse when there's true forgiveness. We're not trying to balance any scales and have the good things outweigh the bad things. no. Instead, we're like, you know what? I've done this bad stuff. Will you please forgive me for the wrong that I have done? And specify explicitly what the wrong thing was that you did wrong. Please forgive me. And then when that other person comes in and they say, I forgive you. then what do you have? Cleansing. And peace. Peace with one another and peace with God. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will become like wool. In verses 19 and 20, he gives a specific charge that's more applicable to the ancient Near Eastern world and the situation in which Israel had found themselves. Well, Judah had found themselves. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good of the land. Remember, they're pulled up there in Jerusalem. And all of these foreign armories are eating and consuming the produce of the land. And if they are good and obedient, what does God tell them that he will do? He will deliver them and they will eat the good of the land. But what if they refuse? What if they continue to rebel? He creates a wordplay. If you obey, you get to eat the food. Of the land, if you rebel, you will be eaten. Look at verse 20. If you refuse and rebel, you will be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Application for a New Testament church. Forgiveness is available when you turn humbly to God and ask for his forgiveness. And as you have been forgiven, so also do you forgive others. Forgiveness should be available when you sin against your spouse, when you sin against your brother in the Lord. And this creates reconciliation in the body of Christ. This creates reconciliation between God and you. This creates peace. And I don't know about you, but we could use a whole lot more peace in our country. When you acknowledge what you did wrong and ask for forgiveness, or when somebody has sinned against you and they come to you and they ask for your forgiveness, and there is forgiveness, then there is peace. This is the gospel, this is the good news. Because you can never do enough work to outweigh the bad things that you have done. But you can have that mob of bad things that you have done taken off of the scale if you simply go to God in humility and ask for his forgiveness. Be forgiven by the Lord. And if you have never trusted in Jesus as your personal savior, I would encourage you, talk to me, talk to one of your pastors when they return. They would love to show you how you can have your sins forgiven. Let's pray. Before I do pray, I just want to give a brief opportunity. I'm not going to ask for any raising of hands or anything. I'm just going to be silent for a couple of moments. And I want you to just give you an opportunity to pray quietly to yourself. Maybe ask for the Lord's forgiveness of some sin or bring some sin to mind, but I'm just going to give you a couple of moments for just silent reflection, and then I'll close us in prayer. Lord, we come before you as sinners. We sin again and again and again. I pray, Lord, that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to know, that we might see the sin in our lives. Lord, if there is some sin that we have harbored, that we have held away from you, that we have held away from another, I pray that you would expose it again. And this time, Lord, when you expose that sin, I pray that we would have humility to acknowledge it, to confess our sin and to be at peace with you and to be at peace with one another. Lord, I thank you for the forgiveness that's available through Jesus the Messiah and how he died on the cross so that we can be forgiven. I pray that we would never grow old of this truth, that we would renew our minds with it day after day after day. And as we reflect upon the forgiveness that you have granted us, that when somebody comes up to us and asks us, I've sinned, will you please forgive me? That your forgiveness that you've given to us would be our motivation to say, yes, I forgive you. I pray for peace and reconciliation between the believers here at Grace Baptist Church in Harlan, between you and them, And then between one another, may there be peace in this church. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of the gospel and the liberating effect that it has. We worship you with pure hands, our holy God. We exalt you for for the forgiveness that you have given to us freely. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.